Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode 40 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday, October the 17th. And Leon, what's on the menu this week? Well, we've got a fascinating interview with Zoe Poynton. Now, Zoe Poynton founded a company called Open Agent, and it uses official sales data and reviews to rank Australian real estate agents and then helps connect potential vendors with the best agents for any given home sale scenario. I mean, that will really throw the whole real estate market into absolute upheaval. Yeah, it's kind of a good housekeeping uh, badge for the uh, real estate agents that people like and trust. Right. So let's have a chat with Zoe Poynton. Zoe, tell us about Open Agent. How does it work? Sure. So uh, what we do is we help people who are thinking about selling their house find the best real estate agent uh, to represent them with that. Uh, so what we actually do is we compare uh, all the different real estate agents who are operating in a particular suburb and uh, use uh, data and customer reviews to come up with some recommended agents uh, for a particular client. And so it, it's, it, does, it, it, does it have a social media effect? Is, it, is that how it works? Uh, no, no, it's not really a social media effect. It's more like uh, how you might think about iSelect or something like that. So you, you will tell us that you're interested in selling your house and a little bit about your property and we'll use our data and our algorithm to uh, generate some recommendations for you. Uh, and if you're, if you're keen, having heard what we have to say, then we'll actually connect you with those real estate agents. Um, and, and it's still completely up to you. Uh, no obligation or anything like that, but, uh, sort of research, I guess, who are the best agents based on our experiences and obviously what the data and the reviews have to say. So. And how long have you been going for and what sort of growth have you had? Yep. So we've been going for two years now and it's been, Pretty phenomenal amount of growth. I guess, you know, growth rates sound very impressive when you're, uh, when you're small. But, um, even in the last sort of few months, we've grown about 100% since the start of the year. So, um, it, it, it's pretty fast. Zoe, do you have a, a list of agents that you work with or do you just go right across the board according to your metrics? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, a very important point. Uh, no, it's not a matter of us signing up a bunch of agents who we like um, or who, you know, have contacted us or anything like that. We are outside in and we look at all of the agents uh, and compare them based on the same. You say you, you use recommendations as well, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we look at both, uh, we'll take into account testimonials that agents can submit or, um, you know, people can submit on the website. And we also take into account something that we call verified reviews. And that's an actual review that has been uh, done using our system and that we've been able to verify back to an an actual transaction. So we consider that to have obviously a, a very uh, high degree of confidence um, so we'll consider all of those things as well as obviously the things that the person is selling and um, the, the results that they've been getting. Now, you recently uh, attracted some big-name investors, I believe. <laughs> is that right? Yes, we did. We did. We did an angel round uh, towards the start of this year and we were pretty excited. I think the, the biggest name investor that we managed to get was uh, Pete Flint from Trulia uh, in the US uh, who recently – Actually, we were recently bought out by Zillow just uh, a few weeks ago um, for three and a half billion. So, 
um, you know, a very, very big name. But, uh, yeah, we were very excited to get those sorts of people and be able to have conversations with those kinds of people about open agent and what, what will work and, and what we're doing. Uh, the, the beauty of the system, I guess, is that it forces agents to be accountable and uh, always ensures that they're competing to get the best deal for their clients. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, uh, one of the, one of the things that was clear to us early on, Mutter and I both came from a, a background where we had done a lot of consulting for big companies and we were, we were just struck by the lack of a performance management system because what you basically have is 30,000 little individual businesses running around, um, and no, nobody really kind of keeping track of who's doing what, whether they're delivering on their promises, um, you know, who's really getting the, best results. So uh, we thought that was a big problem. Um, selling your property can be uh, obviously stressful for a lot of people and most people only only do it very infrequently. So we thought there was an opportunity to uh, provide some real um, value for the consumer experience. In the real estate business, um, it's not unknown for the odd cowboy to pop up. Uh, do you get aware of that and sort of steer clear of them? Yes, we're trying to identify who those cowboys might be um and you know it's it's not always obvious just from looking at the data so i think that's where the reviews are really important and if we if we are to get a a really negative review we we go to a lot of pain to verify it and understand what actually happened uh and and really figure out what's going on um in the situation but yes absolutely i think that's the point is to either um, you know, provide a place where people can find out who the cowboys are, um, and or provide an incentive for people to not behave like cowboys if it were, you know, where it may, you may have previously been able to get away with it. Tell me, how have the real estate agents responded to your service? Look, I think, um, generally very well. Um, in any industry, change is hard. And, um, and like I said, it's a very fragmented industry with a lot of different people running around. And the, the very, very good real estate agents have usually been in, uh, in business for a really long time. Um, there's plenty of them who have been around for 20 or 30 years and they're not necessarily early adopters of technological change. Uh, but that said, I think that, uh, the ones who we're interested in dealing with, have absolutely nothing to hide and they tend to really welcome uh, an independent party who can provide a bit of, I guess, light on, you know, the, the good and the bad and, and the ones that, that we care about are, are very welcoming of what we do. Do you charge um, your members or clients or how, how, what's your business model? Yeah, good question. So, no, we wanted the service to be free. Uh, we were actually told by the real estate agent uh, industry, how they would like us to charge. Um, because what happens is pretty much the commission is split by all sorts of different people who work on the deal in different ways. And so uh, there was already a mechanism in place amongst real estate agents to uh, basically refer deals to each other and um, in that process uh, share the commission. So that's a system that we've plugged into and um, it's something that real estate agents are really comfortable with. So uh, pr- pretty much what happens is if, if you find a real estate agent through us and you end up selecting them and you, uh, end up selling your house, then, uh, at the, you know, at the time when the real estate agent gets their commission, they'll need to pay us a fee. And everybody pays the same fee so that there's no, uh, obviously no incentive for us to, um, recommend one over another based on that. And so that, and that's a flat fee? It's it's a percentage of commission. So if the real estate agent uh, is a cheap real estate agent or an expensive real estate agent, if they uh, end up kind of discounting their fee at the death to get a deal over the line, whatever it is, we are 100% aligned with 
what the, you know what they're paid. So, are you across Australia or mainly New South Wales, Victoria, sort of Queensland? Yeah, uh, we've, so we're, we're based in New South Wales. Um, our customer team who do a lot of work over the phones are sitting in Wollongong. Um, the, the, the thing is we, we're, we have data and reviews nationally. So we work, uh, very broadly, uh, in all the states. I think, um, where, where the, uh, the model has most appeal we've seen is really in metro areas where there are a lot of real estate agents to choose from. Some of the very small country towns, there aren't a lot of options. We can, we can give some advice, but in a lot of cases, you know, there's not, there's not really a lot to analyze, but in the, in the very, um, in the very highly populated areas where, especially where house prices have been rising and there are a lot of new, new, new real estate agents entering the market all the time. I think that's where the model has the most power. So mostly at the moment, are you targeting Sydney or are you moving to other cities as well? No, we do all of our marketing on a completely national level and we're able to uh, handle um, deals. We've handled, you know, rural properties in Tasmania. We've done things in Darwin. We've, we've operated in Perth. We're all over the place, uh, but more metro than regional and rural, I guess. Do you get any calls from, say, China? The Chinese are spending a lot of money around <laughs> the two big cities. Yeah. Uh, we obviously um, we can't really help people with buying because there's not a widely used mechanism of buyer's agents in Australia. Uh, so we don't help buyers, but we do get the odd uh, expatriate seller who is completely lost as to who the right real estate agent is to choose and uh, wind up uh, dealing with us. And we, and we can do that. We do help those people. Now, now the uh, the people you're you're working with are owner occupiers. I take it, not investors. Is that right? Uh, we we get all types actually, and a lot of investors more than you would think because although they're uh, often you know savvy and confident with their sort of uh, decisions in property, they're often also not based in the area where the property is, so they have even less idea of who's uh, who's operating in the area. So we actually, I think we are we're a little bit overweight on investors. When when you say overweight, uh, what, what sort of proportion would be? Uh, I th- I think we probably do thirty percent uh, of our. Um, of our clients are actually investors, whereas maybe all up, there might only be 20% uh, of properties that turn over being investors. That's what I mean by overweight. That's, that's quite a, that's quite a sizable amount. 30% of our clients? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, especially when we, uh, when we first started, we were exclusively making ourselves known through, um, just online advertising in Google. And I think, um, you, you're much more likely to be uh, Googling something like find me a real estate agent in a random suburb uh, if you're an investor than if you live in the area. If you live in the area, there's a good chance that you, you might just walk into your local office and see who's, who's there. So I think, I think that might have been the reason as we expand our awareness, we, we may see that adjust a little bit. So, Zoe, I have to ask you, how do you market your business? I mean, how do, how do, do you advertise? Do you, uh, I mean, how, how do you, how does word get out about your business? Yeah, it's, it's a, we, we do do some advertising. We do some online advertising. Um, we have started looking a little bit into, uh, television advertising and I think we'll be rolling something out very soon along those lines. Um, there's also uh, a fair bit of word of mouth already that's happening. Uh, people telling their friends and coming back to us, you know, ha- we've helped them before and now they're selling another property. So, say, so, uh, you know, a, a bit of a mix of everything like a lot of other businesses. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that we face um, 
it, this is a very new service. People don't necessarily know about it or understand it. And uh, people, um, you know, some of our clients, you know, when they fill in their feedback forms and we ask what could we do better, they sort of say, well, maybe you should get your name out there a bit more. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, I just stumbled across you and um, and we, we sort of um, are like, well, okay, fine, yes, we agree. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, just a bit of everything really. Zoe, thank you very much for your time. No problems at all. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great idea, Leon. I, I reckon she's got, uh, you know, chances over here in the US where the property market's booming as well. Absolutely. And, uh, well, anywhere in the world, uh, I think it's got great potential. Absolutely. Now we're going to have a chat with economist Nicholas Gruen, and he's going to talk to us all about the microeconomic reform and issues of intellectual property and copyright. Okay, let's hear Nick. Nicholas Gruen, you have some views about copyright law and intellectual property law and microeconomic reform and the difficulties of imposing microeconomic reform on those. Tell us about it. Uh, well, copyright and intellectual property generally is an area which could do with a lot of microeconomic reform. It's a major piece of economic regulation and... It's the sort of area where a bit of economic thinking, and I don't really mean by any, even by terribly high-powered economists, some basic economic thinking about costs and benefits could enable us to generate, capture most or all of the benefits that we get from the intellectual property protection that we provide people, that is the exclusivity over their, you know, their creations, their ability to have a monopoly over those creations. And the cost of that, which is, you know, questions like how long should they have that monopoly? Who should be able to take a small piece out of what they've written? So, Leon, if you write a column, if I want to argue with you about what you've written, I can take a sentence out of that and put that in my piece, and then we can debate what you've written, and that isn't a breach of copyright. So there are all these exceptions around copyright, all the ways in which copyright is defined, and you would have had to have long committee meetings to have designed them as inefficiently as we have. But unfortunately, we have very strong lobby groups trying to protect them the way they are, as well as a, a sort of panic about copying on the internet and Copying on the internet can be a problem. It's also a huge opportunity, of course. It's also a, a, a great thing and a bad thing in different circumstances. And none of the kinds of things that the copyright lobby want will reduce piracy particularly. Uh, but what it manages to do is it leaves copyright law stuck in the world of Queen Anne in 1710, which is when copyright law was first designed and came into existence. So, now, Nick, I get um, a modest income from the copyright agency, and I have to say that usually I don't have the faintest idea why it comes in, but it does. Yeah, exactly. And right. I don't know what has been paid, and I, I know what I get, which isn't very much. It's about yeah. 500 bucks a year. Yes, same here, except I've never been able to fill in the forms to actually get the money. It's not enough. It, I get emails from them from time to time, and they tell me to fill in a whole bunch of forms, and I haven't managed to do it yet. Yeah, and to some degree, given the time and whatnot, it's probably not worth it. Yeah. But, you know, so at some point, intellectual property has to be protected, So, but we need to have a better deal than we've got at the moment, don't we? 
Uh, I don't know what you mean by that, Gary. Um, uh, if you mean uh, authors need a better deal, perhaps they do, but they're not going to get it from intellectual property. Intellectual property diverts most of their income to their publishers. Uh, so if you want to get more money to authors, you need a very different system to the intellectual property system unless you're talking about, you know, Madonna and Daniel Steele and various people like that. Well, yeah, I think that's true. And then there's patents if you're talking about design and this sort of thing. But yeah. it's a jungle, isn't it? It's very difficult to define where we ought to be. Well, it is a jungle and... A lot of that jungle might be about as good as we can get it. So take design protection. Design protection sounds like a good idea. Uh, who would want to let somebody else steal somebody else's design? Well, I can tell you why most designs are not stolen, and it's not because they have design protection. It is because it is actually not economic to copy them. Uh, why hasn't somebody produced a copy of a Holden car or a copy of a BMW car? It isn't because the car is design protected. It is that it's expensive to copy it. And what would you rather buy, a genuine BMW or a pretend BMW? So there is a lot of natural protection. Now, do you think it would be terrible if somebody could copy somebody else's dress design or recipe, for instance? Well, it might be terrible, but that's the world that we live in, and it actually works pretty well. But you are getting action you know, in recent times of dress designers going after people who are copying them. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, is that good policy or bad policy? And our instincts are to say that it's good policy to allow copyright in dresses, and my tr more trained instincts tell me that it's bad policy. It's bad policy because not because I don't feel sorry for the odd dress designer who gets their dress design copied, but because the costs of introducing that regime turn out to be greater than, and in fact a lot greater than the benefits. These rights can only be imposed through an extremely expensive and dysfunctional legal system which will immediately place the wealthy and the large uh, and powerful corporations are a huge advantage to small operators. Uh, it will be expensive to operate in itself. And I'm not quite sure what the problem is. Are we don't, do we have not enough different dress designs in the world? You, you see the point I'm making? Yeah, sure. I understand. But I mean, and you're right about the legal cost. If you think back to the battle between Apple and Microsoft over Windows. Neither company actually owned that uh, graphical user interface in initiative. Neither company designed it. Apple claimed to own it and did own some intellectual property, but Microsoft was able to design around it. The, the real economic question is, what was the right decision from the point of view of the economy? And the right decision from the point of view of the economy is that it would have cost tens, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars to have given Apple a monopoly over the graphical user interface, and it didn't need those kinds of returns to develop the graphical user interface. It, it was going to benefit hugely from having done that without intellectual property protection, just as the iPhone has made Apple the richest company in the world for a while without 
intellectual property protection that was so strong that it prevented Android, which is in many ways a copy of the ideas in the iPhone, intellectual property protection didn't make that illegal. And if it had, you could feel that it was kind of fairer for Apple, but it would be a a catastrophic economic decision. Uh, Phones that you could use might cost two, three, four hundred dollars more. There would be far fewer of them in developing countries. There would be endless legal disputation about where you drew the line, where Apple's monopoly began and where it ended, and so on and so forth. And that's what will happen with dresses if we go down that path. Summing up, if you had to reform the copyright and intellectual property regime, what would you suggest? Oh, that's such a big question. I think we should just start by having a proper economic analysis of this. So uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is the fact that these regimes are all stitched up with international agreements. So I'd like to see something like a Productivity Commission inquiry into both patents and copyright. I'd like to see some attempt to define what are the optimal lengths of time that we should allow these rights to run and the way we should delineate those rights so that they create the minimum of border problems and actually delineate what the exclusive right is. So those are the big things that we should do. We should start bringing this into the world of economic reform and not imagine that we can go off and negotiate these things internationally on the basis of uh, some lawyers telling us about you know, doctrines that people have thought about without thinking about this as economic policy, because that's what it is. But that would take a lot of time, and it yep. would take a massive... Uh, it would also be a, a global effort, wouldn't it? Oh, well, that's right. So you would do something like what we did with the Cairns Group in uh, trade negotiation with agricultural countries, which is you start a conversation. At the national level and just within the boundaries of what we can do here. The Australian Law Reform Commission has recommended that we use the fair use exception uh, to copyright. What that means is that, I'm summarising, but basically what it means is that you can come up with some innovative way, some new way of using somebody else's copyright, and so long as you're not undermining their market, that's basically okay. Now, That doctrine applies in the United States, and that's one reason why Google started up in the United States and the, and, and, and Apple's iPod started up in the United States. Both things were taking some risks with traditional copyright, and the doctrine of fair use said it was okay to do that because they weren't doing any harm. They were actually helping the copyright market for other people. In Australia, those things would have been much more difficult, in fact, illegal in the case of iPod and uh, arguably illegal in the case of Google. So those are the sorts of things we could do now that are up for grabs and have been recommended to the Australian government. And CAL, the organisation that uh, uh, Gary just spoke of that sends him his cheque every uh, every year or every few months, uh, CAL is actively campaigning against that because these kinds of ambiguities uh, enable it to go out and scrape more dollars off the pavement, even though it doesn't drive more creative activity. Nicholas Green, thank you very much for your time.
Thanks, Leon. Well, what do you reckon, Leon? You know, if you're an author, it's uh, maybe what Nick is saying is uh, possibly a bit worrying, but it, it, it makes sense. It's intriguing, though, how it's copyright and intellectual property has stayed so far behind the whole pace of microeconomic reform. Yeah, it's well, we're kind of in about the 19th or early 20th century on it at the moment, and I think we've got to learn that it's a different world we're living in. Absolutely, yes, yes. Okay, and now the news. Well, Gary, there's been all sorts of news, and Wall Street, of course, fell last night because of enormous upheaval going on and uncertainty in the market with concerns about the Greek government falling, and Chinese exports grew at their fastest pace in 19 months in September, rising 15.3% from a year ago, and imports also went up 7.7%. And the, now, no one can work out whether that's good because the rebound in exports was partly due to a low base in September last year, although it might signal some improvement in growth in developed economies, particularly the US. Still, China's exports of steel rose to a fresh record last month, almost doubling from a year ago, as steelmakers burdened by China's slowdown boosted their cheap exports to make up for lost margins at home. So September net exports of steel products reached 7.2 million metric tonnes. That's up 4.5% from the last all-time high recorded in May. And steel exports in the first nine months are up 39% to 65.3 million. And also China's trade balance narrowed, coming in well below analyst expectations. According to official data, the trade surplus was US uh, 30.9 billion. That's uh, from 49.8 billion in August. Yeah, it's well down. Absolutely. So everyone's watching the world's second biggest economy, what's happening there. But there's worries going on in Europe, Gary, because Germany slashed its growth forecast for this year, citing a weak global economy amid a series of international crises. And the economics ministry cut its forecast for economic growth this year to 1.2%. That's down from 1.8%. And 1.3% for 2015. That's down from 2%. And factory uh, factory output across the 18 countries that use the euro slumped in August, and that's been driven by the biggest decline in the manufacture of capital goods since the months following the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Yeah, and Germany's taken a fair hit, uh, and which is really worrying because that's the engine for Europe, and it's paying a lot of bills for people like the Greeks and the Italians. Well, that, Gary, is why the oil price has actually fallen. And, uh, you know, we might all be happy that people are paying now less at the pump, but be careful of what you wish for because it's a sign of issues in Europe and China, the less demand for oil. And the International Energy Agency slashed its oil demand forecast and U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate uh, sank $3.90 to 81.8 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. That's down 4.5%. That's right, yeah, and the uh, analysts here are forecasting it's going to drop another $10. Well, it's a case of be careful what you wish for because it reflects the global economy. And spending at U.S. retailers actually went down in September, and that tells us that many Americans are very cautious heading into the final months of a year. And retail and food sales went down 0.3% from August, down to a seasonally adjusted $442.7 billion. And that's the first decline in retail sales since January. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very very quiet here, and uh, even in California, which is uh, and the Silicon Valley, which where I am at the moment, as you know, and you know that's the most prosperous part of America, really. If you look at uh, housing prices and things like that here. It's quite a big issue. Now, to Australia, the crucial final stage of the free trade talks between Canberra and Beijing have been thrown into turmoil following China's shock decision to impose harsh new tariffs on Australian coal supplies, and they've reverted to protectionism, and that's designed to save the local coal industry, and that will see all coking coal imports hit with a 3% price hike, and double that applied to the lower-grade thermal coal, attracting an import tariff of 6%. And that comes after intense lobbying from the local suppliers. It's a bit like the steel industry. I mean, some of the smaller miners, and some maybe even the bigger ones in Australia, I think, are probably going to find it a bit difficult. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Australia is uh, revising its uh, investment uh, plans to attract investment. Uh, it's offering a new premium investor visa next year, granting residency after one year for those who make fifteen million in eligible investments. And that extends the current significant investor visa established under the previous Labor government, which takes four years and an investment of five million. And the changes are aimed to encourage more high net worth individuals to make Australia their home. And foreign investors looking to secure Australian visitors will have to target their money at areas of priority announced by the government. That's all part of the government's new national industry investment competitive agenda. And the areas to be targeted include agribusiness, energy, mining technology, medical technology, and advanced manufacturing. And not real estate, I assume. Not real estate, definitely not. No, no. (laughs) Meanwhile, Australia's appeal as a foreign investment destination has been hit in recent years from a variety of factors. That's according to the peak Australian-Japan business body, and they put out a report claiming the divisive political climate, minor party control of the Senate, and New South Wales corruption scandals and the rise of community campaigns combined with a high currency, high wages, and red and green tape are turning off Japanese investors. And that comes from the Australian-Japan Business Cooperation Committee. Yeah, nothing if not right. But on the other hand, Japan's no great model of political stability either. No, no. Now, we had some interesting stats during the week. Uh, business finance commitments, that is how much they've taken out in borrowings. Uh, that actually slumped in August. The data showed total business finance commitments fell a season adjusted 16.3%. That's according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And weekly consumer confidence showed a modest lift as households remain concerned about the economic outlook. And according to the ANZ Roy Morgan data, and consumer confidence rose 1.1% to 113.8. And it continues to sit around its four-week average of 113.3. Mm. But... The views around the medium-term economic outlook deteriorated. The Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment rose slightly in October, but remained stuck in a pessimistic range. It rose by 0.9% from 94 in September to 94.8 in October, and that makes it the eighth month straight the index has printed a reading below 100. And business confidence is now at its lowest level since the 2013 federal election, according to the NAB monthly business survey. And business conditions slipped further in September to its lowest point in four months with dropping profits and a particularly downbeat employment market driving conditions lower. Well, it's just the caution that's around it. I think it's a matter of confidence or the lack of it that's causing this. 
Well, there's some good news, though. Uh, I mean, according to Mercer Global Pension Index, Australia has the second best retirement savings in the world system in the world. And they found Australia's ability to fund the lifestyle of retirees trailed only Denmark. And Australia climbed one place in the index compared to a year ago, with its position boosted by, by thanks to recent increases in compulsory superannuation payments from 9% to 9.5%. And it also found increasing super contributions to 12% over the long term would ensure a sustainable retirement income for Australians. But it said the system here could be improved by ensuring older workers stay in the labour force longer, lifting the age at which retirees can access a pension and superannuation to account for longer life expectancies and it called for greater transparency from governments and superannuation providers to improve trust in the system. And that's pretty good, Gary. It is indeed very good. But, I mean, there is some incentive there. I mean, if you work beyond, I've forgotten, I think it's 70 or 75, there is a bit of a tax break in there. You, there's a tax bonus that's right. A few percent. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And there was some interesting news from Credit Suisse during the week. Australians are now the richest people in the world, according to the investment bank. And the fifth annual study by the Swiss Bank of Global Wealth Trends found the median Australian adult was worth more than 225000 in June. That's well ahead of the second wealthiest population, the Belgians, at 173,000. They were followed by the Italians, the French, the British, all at around 110,000. Only 6% of Australians have wealth below $10,000, compared to 29% in the US and 70% for the world as a whole. And a lot of that, Gary, is driven by the rising house prices here. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, but if you, I've just seen some figures on Silicon Valley. And the median house price in San Mateo, for example, which admittedly is an upmarket suburb of Silicon Valley, the median house price here is one million uh, Australian dollars. That's pretty high. That's really high. And, of course, it's making a problem for employment because, I mean, the housemate who cleans my bedroom here in in Cupertino in my hotel, uh, she can't afford to live here. Well, yeah, yeah. And of course, there's issues too, because we had a report saying one in seven Australians are living in poverty. So go figure that. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you know, in other words, up the top of the tree is really very comfortable. Down the bottom is not too good. Now, uh, the other big piece of news is that Melbourne-based Bitcoin is hoping to list on the Australian Securities Exchange in November, and it will be the first Bitcoin companies to float on the official stock exchange. Bitcoin manages Bitcoin Group manages an arbitrage funds, hoping to raise $20 million at 20 cents a share, and it's morphing the company into a consolidated payment network. It's run by a 26-year-old boss. Sam Lee, who manages a fund and has netted the support of Chinese millionaire Alan Gao, who made his fortune through manufacturing, supplying and fitting fire safety equipment in China. Now, all of this is coming at a critical time because Bitcoin is highly speculative, fraught with investor risk. It's sort as high as $1,000 a unit from less than $1 US just two years ago, but it suffered from major hacking incidents including the fall of Mt. Gox, that fell for bankruptcy earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And it's no stranger controversy after it lost 100 bitcoins worth about $70,000 after a hacking incident last month. Yeah, they just disappeared. Absolutely. So yeah. I think if you're going to invest in bitcoin, you better be very brave. Yeah, belt and braces and, and even then take a strong drink. And uh, the last piece of news is that uh, Prime Minister Tony Abbott says Australia's coal industry has a big future as well as a big past. And uh, predicted it will be the world's principal energy source for decades to come. 
And he says, coal is good for humanity. Coal is good for prosperity. Coal is an essential part of our economic future here in Australia and right around the world. And meanwhile, I mean, that coincides with mining companies who are campaigning for the G20 leaders meeting in November to support continued use of coal as a solution to the global energy poverty crisis. And Peabody, the world's biggest private coal miner, has launched an online campaign titled The Lights On Project to prove that power is crucial for empowering developing countries. Yeah, and meantime, of course, the uh, use of electricity in countries like developed country is declining and worry about carbon dioxide uh, pollution is rising, you know. So I think Tony is talking to the Chinese. I think he is too, and uh, and he's also using the coal industry line as well. Yeah. Now, uh, so that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That was really good. We'll be back next week with some more news in business, finance, and economics. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. And uh, next week, we're going to have a great interview with Eddie Makalani from Big Commerce, Gary. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. And in the meantime, we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Cheers, Leon. Bye, Gary. <laughs>